Welcome to the High on Life podcast, where it's all about empowering you with the medicine and the mindset to healthfully lose weight and thrive beyond the scale. I'm your host, Dr. Sasha High. This podcast contains general educational information on weight loss and beyond. Remember that while I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. So be sure to seek medical support from a qualified health professional. Welcome back to the High on Life podcast. It is episode 44. And today we are talking all about binge eating disorder. And I'm really thrilled to have Julie May, one of our amazing registered dietitians. She's also a life coach for women who has specialized experience and training, supervised training in treating binge eating disorder. So I want to welcome Julie to the episode today. Thanks for joining us, Julie. Thank you, Sasha. Thank you for having me. And that was a very nice introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to tell anything more? Like, tell us more about you. Tell us a little bit more so our listeners can learn about you a bit. Sure. So this is the story that I often (laughs) tell people to introduce myself and my career trajectory. So I have always loved nutrition and the idea of preventing diseases rather than treating it after the fact. And that was what led me to become a dietitian. Mm -hmm. And I started my career in the ICU and I was in long-term care uh, <laughs> 2020, 2021. Yikes. Then I made the big jump because I wanted to find something that fit my lifestyle as well as have something fulfilling to do. And I discovered the high metabolic clinic and I've been working there and very happy ever since. Yeah. And we've been so happy to have Julie. She's been an amazing addition to our team. And right off the bat, when Julie started with us, we were like, Hey, we're going to throw you into this amazing preceptorship that we were able to secure with an eating disorder clinic in Halifax. And you were going to learn all about binge eating disorder and you're going to become a pro at treating binge eating disorder. And that is exactly what has happened. And I have just kind of been floored by Julie's ability to like dive in and learn the cognitive behavioral therapy strategies for treating binge eating disorder. So we're going to talk all about that in the next episode, but today what we thought we would do is clarify what is binge eating disorder? How do we diagnose it? Who should people be speaking to? How do people know if it's a problem for them? All of those things. Cause I think binge eating disorder is really common, but really like there's a lack of clarity about what exactly it is. And it's often not picked up. So Julie, do you want to just start us out and kind of give us like your overview when you're talking to clients about binge eating disorder, like what is it? And, uh, and then we'll talk about diagnosis. Yes. So everything you said is absolutely correct. Binge eating disorder is the most underdiagnosed, undertreated. A lot of people don't even realize that they have binge eating disorder. In my anecdotal experience, when people come to us at the high metabolic clinic looking for weight loss, It's really interesting how sometimes we discover that they actually do have binge eating disorder without realizing that they do. Mm -hmm. And this is how it can show up. It can either be a cycle of restrictive dieting. We all know about the fad diets and with too much restriction, eventually your body survival mechanism kicks in and says, it's time to have food. And that's how you end up having a binge cycle And it can feel like a loss of control. You feel like you're in a trance. You know what's going on, but you can't actually stop. And that's because your body survival instincts have kicked in to say, you have to have food right now or we are going to die. So 
that's how we can get into the restrict and binge cycle. And the binges may not be at the end of each day. It could be at the end of the week. And it ends up being a cyclical thing where there's the guilt, the shame, the physical discomfort from having the binge, which then leads a person to not eat for a prolonged period of time because of that feeling. Mm -hmm. And then the cycle repeats. So that's the first common manifestation of binge eating disorder. But there's also kind of a second version that I notice anecdotally too. And it's where it's more of a compulsive binge eating, eating in large volumes, but there's not the element of restriction. And sometimes that could happen just because of wiring in the brain. It could also happen because there isn't necessarily restriction, but maybe there are nutrient gaps, which is then exasperating these binge episodes. And there are also some mental health diagnoses such as ADHD, anxiety, or depression that could make someone more likely to develop binge eating disorder. Yeah. So you kind of described two kind of profiles. There's the binge restrict profile, and then there's just the compulsive overeating, binging profile. I think the toughest part for healthcare providers, but even for individuals is differentiating true binge eating disorder, where it's a psychiatric diagnosis, like listed in the DSM-5 for uh, psychiatric diagnoses versus just someone who kind of has some compulsive overeating behaviors or even has binge behaviors, but doesn't meet the diagnostic criteria. Can you tease that out a little bit for us? Yes. So in the DSM-5, I don't have it in front of me, but it states that there needs to be a certain frequency for Mm -hmm. it to be determined as binge eating disorder. So I believe it's one large binge episode, a larger amount of food than a regular person would have um, within the past three months. But in general, the, the frequency is a big role and also the volume of food. Some people will say that they have a binge, but the term is used more loosely and it ends up just being maybe like a couple bowls of chips versus having the whole bag. Yeah. Yeah. So I pulled it up the DSM five criteria, just so that we can clarify that. And I think there's still some gray. So if we listen to what it says, one of the criteria is recurrent episodes of binge eating. So we'll just talk about the frequency for a second. It is you're right. One day a week for three months or two days a week for six months, but it says eating in a discrete period of time, an amount of food that is definitely larger than most people would eat in a similar period of time under similar circumstances. And I think that's the part where it's like, oh, like who's judging exactly like what a normal amount of food is? Because I bet there's a lot of, you know, people who could polish off a bag of chips, right? So it just, I I find that it becomes a little bit gray for people, but I think you know, from the experience that we've had now in treating binge eating disorder, it's usually not just a bag of chips, right? It's like I eat the bag of chips and then I find myself back in the pantry and then I eat like two whole rows of Oreos and then I'm moving on to, and it's like, sometimes it's like between sweet and salty and back and forth. And the other factor that you mentioned earlier, you said people feel like they're in a trance. There's definitely that numbing out kind of lack of conscious awareness piece to binge eating disorder. Am I right? Would you agree with that piece? Yes. So that's kind of part two of the diagnostic criteria from the DSM-5, the sense of lack of control over eating during the episode. So feeling that one cannot stop eating or control what or how much one is eating. And then there's usually three or more of the following. So eating more rapidly than normal. And that goes along with like when you're numbing out and in that transition, like eating it really quickly so that you, it's almost like your, your conscious brain can't engage because you're eating quickly, feeling uncomfortably full, 
eating large amounts of food when not physically hungry, eating alone because of being embarrassed by how much one is eating. And that's, that's a piece we haven't touched on yet. The shame that's associated and then feeling disgusted with oneself, depressed or very guilty after the overeating. And the third factor that's really important, there's a lot of distress regarding the binge eating. So I think that's another differentiator is some people will kind of like have these compulsive overeating episodes, but then they're not really bothered by it. They're just like, okay, yeah, whatever. Like it's just, I had a binge or I overate and it's not distressing to the point where they feel a lot of shame and they hate themselves for it, where we do see that with binge eating disorder. Do you want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah, I would absolutely agree. So the people that I see that have binge eating disorder definitely feel that guilt and shame after a binge. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important that that gets addressed in binge eating disorder treatment, because if there is guilt about the food, what that tells us is there's likely an underlying belief or conditioning that we deserve to feel guilt and shame because of likely the type of food. And it's really interesting because I'll ask people, if you were to eat two cucumbers right now, would you be feeling the same way that you're currently feeling? And Mm. often the answer is no. And the guilt will come from what we call fear foods or basically foods that our society has deemed junk food, foods that could make you gain weight. And if you are feeling guilt and shame because of the type of food that you're having, then it means that we have to let go of that diet mentality, which we always talk about at the high metabolic clinic. We don't really realize it consciously, but Every day we are being fed what the media tells us about what foods are bad. And there's a lot of moral judgment about food. And that's the work that needs to be done because that's what's stemming the guilt and the shame. Yeah, that is such a huge piece of it because diet culture is very much like good food, bad food. And if you eat bad food, you are a bad person, right? Like that's kind of where that, that thinking, that line of thought goes. And so then there's a lot of that internalized blame and shame which then we know that negative emotions are often a trigger for binging, right? Self-soothing with food. And that can also perpetuate the cycle. Mm-hmm. Take this on a deeper level as well. Sometimes our relationship with food as a child and how our upbringing looked can affect our relationship with food as an adult too. Right. So a lot of us experience what I call the, the scarcity mindset. So the feeling of not enough. If we have had childhoods with financial hardship, Or maybe our parents weren't bringing in this junk food into the house because they wanted us to be healthy. We absorb that too as a child. And then sometimes as an adult, we almost have this teenage rebellion effect where Mm -hmm. we weren't allowed these foods as a child, but now I make my own money. I can make my own decisions. So I'm going to optimize on this and maximize this experience now because no one's telling me what to do. And For all of us as humans, if someone tells you you can't do something, you're going to want to do it more. (laughs) But sometimes this can be that tipping point to then contributing to that binge eating disorder. Yeah. Yeah. It's that classic, like that's, that's, you know, when you feel restriction, you're like, you you said it, the teenager, right. Or it's like the toddler brain that rebels and is like, you can't tell me what to do. Right. And just wants to eat all the things. Yeah. So we kind of talked about the diagnostic criteria. Now let's touch on if someone, cause this is the tricky part is someone might hear this and they're kind of identifying with it, but most family doctors are not going to be screening for binge eating disorder. Right. And so what do people do? That's, that's the, I think that's the really hard part. And there's like a gap in our medical system where family doctors, I mean, certainly some are now getting trained to look for it in 
for example, some of the risk factors that we might clue in that there's binge eating disorder is rapid waking, metabolic disturbances as a young at a young age. Binge eating disorder frequently pre- like starts developing in the tw- like in your twenties or quite early on. And so there are some clues that family doctors can look for, but oftentimes it's touchy. Asking about eating isn't something that generally comes up aside from telling people that they should really lose weight, right? Like that's sort of how the the conversation goes in the doctor's office. So I don't know any suggestions or any thoughts that you have about how someone could get the diagnosis so that they can then get the appropriate treatment. That's definitely the challenge for sure. Of course, the blanket advice is to see uh, a mental health professional, such as a psychotherapist, a psychiatrist who can make the diagnosis. But I know not all medical professionals are educated on binge eating disorder. Another thing that an individual could do is there is a screening questionnaire called the BED7, mm-hmm. eating disorder seven. It's just a screening tool. It's not a diagnostic tool, but it could help an individual get an idea of maybe this is what they have. Yeah, that's great. Actually, I think that's a really good start is like just Google BEDS7, take the screening questionnaire. And if you're like, oh, I'm kind of identifying with all of this, then that might be a reason to go to your family doctor and say like, hey, I'm really, you know, I'm struggling with my eating and I think it's beyond just me. I think I might might need help with this. And I think a lot of family doctors may not be comfortable yet diagnosing it, but hopefully that they can then refer you to an appropriate provider. The last part, just to clarify about binge eating for anyone listening, is that there's an absence of purging behaviors. And I think that's a really important differentiator because then there, there, there can be some overlap between bulimia and binge eating disorder. But the major differentiator is that there is no purging behavior. So no laxative abuse, no excessive overexercise, no, no, no self-induced vomiting, right? Yes. Yeah. And we call those compensatory behaviors. So anything that we're making up for a binge that we had or something that we ate. Right. Right. The tricky part with that is that restriction is a compensatory behavior, right? You're right. (laughs) I just kind of thought of that in that moment. Yeah. Okay. So someone gets, someone goes to their doctor, gets the diagnosis. As you mentioned, there's frequently overlapping psychiatric diagnoses like anxiety, depression, ADHD. I think it's really important to comment that the prevalence of binge eating disorder in the general population is about 2.7%, which is, I, I believe that number is correct, but it's higher than anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa combined. So it is the most common eating disorder. And in the population of patients seeking treatment for obesity, particularly uh, studies looking at the bariatric surgery population, it's as high in some studies as 50% of people seeking bariatric surgery actually have binge eating disorder. And that's where like, we need to be doing a better job of treating binge eating disorder, right? And really equipping people with the right tools because the last thing that they need is another diet because diet sets up restriction. And then we know that restriction leads to binging. So let's talk for a moment of like a general overview of what treatments are available for binge eating disorder? Yes. So there are three basically types of pillars that can help with this. First is dietary modifications. So in the eating disorder world, dietitians are educated on what's called mechanical eating. And basically it's where you eat on a schedule instead of following your hunger cues. So Mm -hmm. anyone with binge eating disorder will be able to relate to this, but we live in a world that is very pro-intuitive eating right now, which is eating based on your hunger cues. And it's a really great concept and works for a lot of people. But for someone with binge eating disorder, you, the brain is telling you that you are full, it's time to stop, 
but we're overriding that when we're having a binge. And even people with anorexia nervosa, where the brain is telling us we are hungry, they are also overriding that. So our hunger cues are unreliable for someone with an eating disorder. And if we can't rely on those cues, we have to rely on a schedule, uh, which is why we call that mechanical eating and ideally eating every three hours to make sure that our blood sugars are steady and that our body is satiated so it doesn't lead to then a binge. So dietary modification is one. Two is behavioral therapy. So in the high metabolic clinic, we are realizing that there aren't a lot of resources out there for binge eating disorder. Mm -hmm. There is a lot for what we call underweight eating disorders, and there's inpatient, outpatient treatments for that. But for binge eating disorder, there's not a lot. So in terms of manualized programs for clinicians to practice. We have only discovered one called um, CBTT, which stands for cognitive behavioral therapy. And we will cover that more in the next episode, but that is the only one that we've really looked at for in terms of behavioral therapy. And then the number three is pharmaceutical. So there's medications that potentially could be used for people with binge eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the, that's the tough part is we have medical condition that is underdiagnosed, underrecognized by healthcare providers. And then when they do get the diagnosis, we have this like paucity treatment options. So certainly there is a bigger push to treat with medications. And there's only one medication that is approved by Health Canada for treating binge eating disorder presently. And there's sort of a push for family doctors to become familiar with it because it's more time intensive and resource intensive to offer the behavioral therapies, but the behavioral therapies are actually, they can be extremely effective. And that includes things like interpersonal therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, like you mentioned, Julie. So there's, there are treatment options, but what we were finding when we were identifying patients with binge eating disorder is we would make these referrals and we would just never hear back, right? Or the wait time would be like a year and a half. And so- Unfortunately, accessing these treatments can be challenging, which is why we decided to fill that treatment gap. <laughs> and that's where you come in. And, and I'm so proud of the program that we're developing, which is called Recover Strong. And we're going to talk about that next episode. So let's just summarize. We talked about the diagnostic criteria for binge eating disorder. So eating large amounts of food in a discrete period of time with a sense of lack of control, often more rapidly than normal, feeling uncomfortably full, eating beyond fullness. Being and then often eating alone or in secret because of embarrassment and feeling very disgusted with oneself or depressed afterwards. So that that shame being the hallmark, and the frequency being at least once a week for a period of three months consecutively to meet the DSM five criteria with no compensatory behavior afterwards. So, you know, if if someone's listening and you know if if you're listening and you're hearing this and you're kind of like oh yeah, I can definitely identify with that, then we would really encourage you to reach out to your healthcare provider. And if you're not comfortable with that, then finding maybe a psychologist or some sort of counselor who may be more familiar with the eating disorder world who could help you with that diagnosis and accessing treatment. And then do you want to summarize the treatments that we, that we just described? Yes. So you can either see a registered dietitian specializing in eating disorders who can work with you on the dietary modification and the mechanical eating piece that I explained. And, or you can go to a mental health professional to get the, the CBT or DBT types of therapies that could help with binge eating disorder, as well as the, the medication that a, a family doctor or a psychiatrist could prescribe. Yeah. Awesome. 
Before we wrap up, because I, ju- I just remembered that we didn't cover this and I think it's important, let's touch on what causes binge eating disorder. Like why do some people develop it? Aside from, we, you know, we discussed the sometimes mental health conditions that can be a risk factor. And you mentioned experience as a child, but anything else that we know about what causes binge eating disorder, Julie? I can touch on the, the wiring of the brain that I had mentioned essentially in what we call the the neurological appetite systems of the brain or the part of the brain that motivates you to go eat so that we survive. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there is what we call faulty wiring in that part of the brain and you're and sometimes we're born that way where uh, some parts of the brain are overstimulated and others are under. So when our brain tells us that we're full, the the mechanism it tells us to stop is maybe understimulated and is causing people to override their hunger cues or that just that reward part of the brain is particularly strong and mm. so people require a larger dose or quantity of the food or substance in order to fully get the the pleasure out of the food yeah yeah so there's that I, I think there's a few different parts of the brain that may be involved and and this is the thing is it's not well characterized so it's like we don't know definitively what the one thing is that's going to cause someone to develop binge eating disorder, but there's also thought to be an impulse control factor within the frontal cortex, which is our executive functioning. And that's why there can be that overlap with ADHD, which also is associated with impulsivity. So that impulsivity can lead to the overeating behavior. So I think it's an area where there's still not complete clarity, But the amazing thing is that some of the treatments, like especially the cognitive behavioral treatments, especially what we've seen, can be so incredibly effective and so incredibly life-changing. So that's the hope message, right? Is that if we can understand that this is not a matter of personal failure, moral failure, willpower, we can understand that this is a medical diagnosis, there is physiology, there are risk factors, and then there is effective treatment, then we can move forward with this for, for patients, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Julie, thank you so much for coming on. And as we said, we're going to have a part two of this, where we're going to talk about recover strong, which is our eating disorder treatment program. We're going to explain kind of how it works and the science behind that with the cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy. So that will be in the next episode. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. Hey, if you are struggling with binge eating disorder and you haven't been able to get the treatment that you need, then I want to invite you to join Recover Strong. It is our new one-on-one coaching program that is available to women across Canada. In 10 short weeks, you can reduce your binging, improve your relationship to body, to food, and to self, address the negative emotions that can be associated with binge eating disorder and concerns like body dissatisfaction, body checking or avoidance, and comparison with others. We will help you have a plan for relapse prevention so that you can really eliminate binges for good. You'll leave this program confident and in control in the face of all foods and empowered in your relationship with yourself. Now is the time to end the cycle of binge, shame, and restrict once and for all. Check it out, www.highmetaboliclinic.com bed, and we're looking forward to supporting you.